Hi friends, Fred Harrell here. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly City Church Sermon Podcast. Just a note that as we continue to shelter in place here in San Francisco, we will be bringing you our Sunday Sermon audio recording via Skype over a Facebook Live broadcast. So if the audio quality seems like a little lower than normal, then now you know what's happening. We just wanted you to know. You can join us on Facebook Live each Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening and subscribing to our podcast. The scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us here. Help us to be receptive to what you have for us to hear today. We pray that you would help us to believe that you have arranged this moment and you have something you want us to hear, something to trust. And we ask that you would help us to believe also that you see us in all of our beauty and all of our fragmentation and all the ways we get it and don't get it. And your response is always to move towards us to restore to heal, to renew. So give us grace now to be present to your already presence in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So boy, we've been in the book of Romans now for four weeks. Paul does a lot of theology in chapters 1 through 11, and lots of talk about what the death and resurrection of Jesus means for Israel's story, and really for all of creation and how when it comes to his unanswered questions, he, like Abraham, must have hope against hope for what he does not see. Paul starts with concrete concepts and ends with mystery and mercy, a path that might be seen as a paradigm of healthy growth. And now on to chapter 12, and now it's time for love, for living out in love what Paul has been teaching. Because I think Paul knows something. Paul knows that loveless orthodoxy is death. And that the world watches, observes, and makes conclusions. And when it sees hypocrisy, when it sees exclusion, when it sees backbiting, when it sees abuse, 
when it sees belittling and shaming, when it sees the support of racism and white supremacy, when it sees the privileged majority making all the rules for the non-privileged minorities, when it sees gloating, when the world sees silence in the face of injustice, they draw conclusions. They leave or never come in the first place. And who could blame them? There was a hashtag on Twitter that went viral a few years ago. And it's a hashtag that said, empty the pews. Now, these are really hard to hear what I'm about to read you, but these are actual tweets from people who voted with their feet and left the church. Pastors wanted their children to be like mine until my son came out as gay, then demanded I disown him. F that. I was told my depression was due to unconfessed sin in my heart. I prayed so hard for hours every day until a doc intervened. When I was told that my mental health issues were demonic and that I just needed to pray more. When my best friend came out to me and said in the same breath that he was going to kill himself rather than tell his church. When I was told to give it to God and he will heal in regards to my PTSD flashbacks, depression, and anxiety. Because grieving three back-to-back miscarriages was a sign of weak faith and a bad testimony to the watching world. When an evangelical church told me I had to submit to my ex-husband to avoid beatings, I left the church and my husband. Toxic evangelical Christianity says my dad died because he didn't have enough faith, wasn't prayed for enough. I left American evangelicalism because of the election. I felt really betrayed by the church. Denouncing white supremacy and racism is too political, but condemning LGBTQ Christians is a yearly sermon. And one that sums up all the rest in many ways. Because Christians do not live the teachings of Jesus, hashtag empty the pews. I was sitting on a bus early in my time here 24 years ago, listening to a fellow passenger tell me why he had no interest in church. It's simple for me. You don't take Jesus seriously. If you did, I'd attend. Here's what I think he meant. You don't take Jesus' actual ideas seriously. And I think he's right. This is what Miroslav Volf said in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He said, Pilate deserves our sympathies, not because he was a good, though tragically mistaken man, but because we are not much better. We may believe in Jesus, but we don't believe in his, we do not believe in his ideas, at least not his ideas about violence, truth, and justice. Someone says, don't get too political in your sermons. That's a social gospel. I think the earliest Christians would actually ask, are you sure you haven't made your Christianity part of the structure of empire? 
Christians who are given to nationalistic impulses and being the first ones to assert their rights at the cost of their neighbor's well-being means that churches have been far more interested in the gospel of Caesar instead of the gospel of the kingdom. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. The politics of the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, are antithetical to the political interests of a military and economic superpower. What Paul calls his readers and us into is a revolution. A revolution of a community simply taking serious the challenge of living under the reign of Jesus. A kingdom where the supreme value of the politics of Jesus is not power, but love. Because Jesus rejects the power, the politics of power for the politics of love. Paul, in his most direct channeling of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, directs the community in Rome and the community in San Francisco to take up the values of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God persuades by love, witness, spirit, reason, rhetoric, and if need be, martyrdom, but never by force. If the politics of Jesus' world, if the politics of Jesus, the world be changed by non-coercive love or not at all. That's Jesus' politics. It's not the task of the church to change the world by legislative force. It's the task of the church to be the world changed by Christ. And it's the task of City Church San Francisco. That's what we mean by following Christ to, lo- to love the city, to renew the city. Okay, so that's kind of a long introduction, but I promise short three points. Paul shows us three things here. First, the community of love. He says in verse 9, let love be genuine. And then Paul proceeds to tell us what that genuine love looks like. And he toggles back and forth between love within the community and love outside the community and love within both. Love within the community. This is what he says. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rejoice in hope. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Live in harmony with one another. And all of this is to be done with zeal, ardent in spirit, serving the Lord. Here's what I think is Paul's assumption. You can't be living out the love of Jesus you, excuse me, you will be living out the love of Jesus in community. You won't be doing any of these on your own. Some can't be done alone. Jesus didn't leave us a book, but a community of people living out the values of a new polis, a new politics, a new kingdom, where love of enemy, mercy, Justice for the poor and marginalized and forgiveness lead the way instead of the violence, coercion, and accumulation marked by the kingdoms, by the empires, by the superpowers of this world. Paul actually says this this quote. He actually says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. What if this is what people thought of when they thought of church? 
Oh, those are the people who outdo one another in showing honor to one another and to all outsiders. Let's make it a competition if you must. That's the community of love. And then second, Paul describes the response of love. Again, here's a list. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them because speech can be a vehicle for violence as well. Do not repay evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. I mean, what's this talk here of not repaying evil for evil and blessing people who persecute? I don't know, Fred. I think this is where the whole enterprise might go sideways. But this is what's going on. Jesus rejects the politics of power for the power of love. And I think Paul knows it. Paul knows, to quote Martin Luther King Jr., hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Paul knows, to quote Desmond Tutu, that good is stronger than evil, love is stronger than hate, light is stronger than darkness, and life is stronger than death. Paul knows, to quote Audre Lorde, it is not our differences that divide us, it is our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. Paul knows, to quote James Baldwin, that one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with their pain. Paul knows we cannot eliminate enemies through violence, that violence only multiplies enemies. That the only way to eliminate enemies is to love them and forgive them radically. That when, when we lose the face of God in our enemy, we will lose our own humanity in the process, which is another way of saying an enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard. I think Paul knows that hurt people hurt people, that his persecutors, that your persecutors, that perpetrate evil, that must be hated. Paul says to hate what is evil in verse 9. Yes, but without dehumanizing the perpetrators of that evil. Paul knows all of this because Jesus taught him. If you were to apply this to current events, white supremacy and all supremacist ideologies are a violation of Paul's exhortations to love one another with mutual affection, verse 10, and to live in harmony with one another, verse 16. It is an expression of the ultimate disconnection of one human being from another or from other groups of human beings. It is the result of failing to recognize the image of God in another, and as a result, is a separation from God in oneself. It is evil and ought to be condemned as such. You know, the law of the land in Paul's day, and indeed in Jewish tradition, allowed a certain amount of retribution, retribution in these sorts of situations. Evil was not and is not to be left unanswered. And indeed, Paul agrees that evil always must be answered. Silence is never the answer. Silence is complicity. However, rather than saying 
repay anyone evil for evil, Paul exhorts us to, quote, take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. In the midst of the hate-filled, divisive rhetoric in which we continue to find ourselves, is there anything that can be considered noble or good in the sight of all people? This is going to take holy imagination. I think that may be part of the calling of the church right now, is to stoke a holy imagination. Let me give you an example of this that I found from a few years ago. The people of Wissendel, Germany, for the past 25 years, neo-Nazis march in their city. It is the home to the grave of Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess. But in 2014, sponsors agreed to donate money for each step marched by the neo-Nazis. With the cash going to programs that fight Nazis and help people come out of these cults. It was billed as Germany's most involuntary walkathon. Instead of greeting the group with protests, they put up banners welcoming them to the Nazis Against Nazis walkathon. Signs throughout the route encouraged them to keep walking to raise more money, and organizers put out tables of bananas and water to help them keep up their energy so that they could keep walking and keep raising money. They even painted numbers in the ground so the neo-Nazi marchers would be forced to see how much money they'd collected at every milestone. At the end, they passed out certificates reminding them of how much money they raised to fight Nazis. 10,000 euros or close to $12,000 going to a group called Exit Deutschland that helps neo-Nazis to defect from the movement. And now other communities are emulating it. I'm not telling you that this is the perfect Christian response to this evil. I'm just saying this is in the category of what Paul is talking about, of take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Paul is not commanding passive submission to the evils of this world, but is commending a still more excellent way to quote his words from 1 Corinthians. I wonder how those water tables and bananas felt to those neo-Nazis. Perhaps like burning coals upon the head. Ah, you were wondering when I was going to get to that phrase. This is not about some kind of passive, aggressive response of revenge. Be nice to them and that'll make them feel bad. You can get them that way. Ha! This is actually not about the person extending enemy love to another at all. It's about reciprocation or the lack thereof. Love can be experienced as burning coals, or love can be experienced as a burning river. It all depends on how it's received. Love burns for those who make themselves love's enemy. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Give him drink. Continue to love him. It will be like burning coals on his head as long as he hates. That's what Romans 12, 20 says. But all they must do is to turn and receive that love as love and becoming friends, the former enemy no longer experiences torment, but rather the joy of received love. Peace is the same. You can only, as Paul says, live peaceably with all so far as it depends on you. It must be received and returned. Ever extend peace 
to someone, but they will have none of it. And then just a quick word about wrath. Leaving room for God's wrath, this, this verse talks about this passage. It's primarily because we don't do human wrath in a way that's restorative, only retributive. Vengeance is God's, but don't assume you know how God intends to meet that out. Leave that in God's hands. It's above our pay grade. We often think of the wrath of God as God's active punishment or judgment upon sinners. But this is not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is the natural consequence of trying to live in a way that is opposed to love. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, when you move against God and God's love, you move against yourself. The wrath of God is the love of God wrongly received. Either we go with the grain of love or we suffer the shards of self-inflicted harm. And that you did it to yourself by resisting God's love makes it no less of a judgment. If I had more time, I'd go further to talk about this, and maybe I will in a future sermon. But here's a great quote from N.T. Wright. He says, The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, and in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise. Here's the bigger point. In loving our enemies, we remember how God loved us. In loving our enemies, We remember how God loved us, and we participate in reflecting God's love to the world. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, which is not a call to perfectionism, but an exhortation that comes right after Jesus calls us to love our enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. And then lastly, I just want to point you to the fuel of love. The fuel is remembering how Jesus loves you having an ongoing experience of Jesus' love for you, believing that when he looks at you, he does not do so just as he did, that he does so just as he did the multitude of people in Matthew 9, where he says he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When you read in the Gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion, it means his gut was wrenched, his heart torn open, the most vulnerable part of his being laid bare. We are not, you are not, someone whose story is unknown to Jesus. He not only knows what hurts us, but knowing seeks out whatever our poverty, whatever our pain, and seeks us out in the midst of it, never shying away from it. His plea with people was always to come now, frightened, wounded, angry, lonely, empty, and he promises to meet you where you live and to say, I'll love you where you are, not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be, but I will walk with you. I will be with you always. Will you be with me?
Do you really believe this? With all the mistakes of your past, do you believe that Jesus Christ loves you without caution, regret, or boundaries, or limits? No matter what has gone down, what has gone down in your life, he can't stop loving you. This is the Jesus of the Gospels. This is the Jesus that appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road, who in confronting someone who was persecuting and killing the church, and as Jesus said, me, identifying with the victims of this persecution, said to Paul, then named Saul, 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 don't you see that you are kicking against the spurs? You are hurting and dehumanizing yourself. The wrath, the intrinsic consequences of moving against my love is tearing you apart. Paul was met with love on that road. He could spurn it, and that love would be like burning coals, or he could receive it, and that love would be, as it was, a river of life. Paul chose the latter. Paul was loved while an enemy, and it turned him into a man of peace. And he challenges us today to be a community of peace, conduits of God's love to a world that is stuck in the mire of payback, pride, and pretension. There is still a more excellent way, and we must live into it together. May God give us grace to do so. Amen.